Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 12, 1-11 Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of Jews learned that he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that my first car was a 92 Ford Taurus station wagon. So... Yeah, Um, (laughs) it was silver, had burgundy interior. I I think that's why I took up the guitar because I had to like balance it out, you know, like how uncool that was. I'm like, I'll pick a cool instrument, right? And so uh, it also had these plastic spinner rims, like hubcaps, really, that my friend got me as a joke. Well, the joke was on him because I put them on there and it was awesome. But the car turned out to be actually pretty useful in the sense that my job all throughout high school and college was was painting. So I worked for a a contractor that would do like interior renovation and once they'd get done, you know, renovating the house, uh, he'd send me in there and I'd I'd paint away. And so I'd paint probably 40 or 50 houses a year. And so my station wagon was kind of like my my truck, but with a roof, you know? And so it was just always full of paintings of paint and rollers and brushes and all that stuff. And, and if, if a bucket fell over and, and paint, you know, kind of splat around, no big deal. Cause it's a 92 Ford Taurus station wagon. Like who cares, you know? And so, especially in the two summers, the first two summers that I was back on break from college, I worked especially hard. Me and my station wagon would drive around and we worked overtime to really save up money because I, I needed to buy an engagement ring. So my wife and I were high school sweethearts. We had dated for several years and, uh, and we did, we'd had conversations about getting married and we, we'd even dated long distance while I was in Chicago at school and all this stuff. And it was, it was definitely time to, to pop the question. And so by the time that I had worked you know, really hard those two summers, I'd finally saved up enough money to buy the engagement ring to pop the big question. It was a pretty big deal. Now, what if... Instead of buying a ring, instead of doing that, I said, you know what, we'll get engaged sometime. 
this car stinks. I'm just going to get myself a new car. My guess is that none of you would have endorsed that decision. <laughs> like you ladies, you're like, do not do. I didn't do that, by the way, obviously. But you'd be like, I, and the guys, you're like, dude, don't do that. Bad idea. Drive the station wagon. Get the girl, drive the station wagon. Right? Like, don't do that. Now, why would none of you probably endorse that decision to abandon the ring, buy the thing for myself? It's because... In that moment, if that were to happen, would I, there'd be, a, there'd be a disparity between what I say I value and what my actions say I value. Like I would say, I love this woman, I wanna be with her for the rest of my life. But my actions would actually say, I care a lot about how I look in my car. Because what's true is, is that we are always the most generous toward what we value the most. We are always generous toward what we value. And what we're going to see this morning is a kind of belief, a kind of love, a kind of valuing of Christ, that when you love and value Jesus, it will result and you having a particular posture, a particular perspective, and particular priorities. A particular posture, a particular perspective, and particular priorities. Now, what we've had for the first 11 chapters of the book of John, we've been in John for about seven months. The first 11 chapters of the book of John is really John's account of the first, of, of the three years of Jesus's ministry. So, th so over the first 11 chapters, we've been looking at three, a three-year time span. Now, as we get to chapter 12, we hit a transition point in the book of John. We're basically from chapter 12 until the end of the book. What we're getting is a zoomed in look at the last week week of Jesus's life. And what you'll notice is that for chapters 1 through 11, Jesus has been addressing and talking to the crowds, to the masses. In these last, you know, final chapters, the second half of John, Jesus is very squarely talking to his disciples. But what we've seen so far is that as Jesus has talked to the crowds, as he's talked to the masses, that Jesus has been an incredibly polarizing figure. We've seen over and over and over again that there's really only two responses to Jesus. The one response is believing that he is who he said he is. And the other response is not believing that he is who he says he is. Belief and unbelief. And so what we get now as we begin this kind of transition chapter in chapter 12 is we really get a picture of these two responses in the characters of Mary and Judas. You could call this a tale of two responses, what true belief looks like and what a facade of belief looks like. You could say it that way. So first, as we look at Mary who personifies this kind of like true belief in Christ. She displays for us the particular posture that true love for Christ 
has. And so what we see in verse two is that John is describing this, this scene where uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are, are throwing Jesus a party. They're having a dinner for him and, and Jesus is reclined at the table with Lazarus, who he had just raised from the dead, and also surely other people who are there. And now when we think of this like reclining at the table scene, often what I think we get the picture in our mind is kind of like Da Vinci's Last Supper right? Where everyone is sitting on one side of the table and they're all kind of like facing the camera, but not looking at it, you know, where it's, it's like that Instagram picture where, you know, it's like the selfie of them, you know, that person asleep. And you're like, how, who took the picture if you were asleep? Like that doesn't make any sense. Kind of like that, where it's like, they're just kind of like facing the camera, but not looking. The way it would have actually looked back then in the way that meals were eaten is that generally they were, they were eaten on the floor. And so, the food would be put kind of like in the middle of the room and everyone would kind of like fan out in a semicircle around the food, kind of laying down on mats, you know, and like leaning on one arm or like leaning on both their arms with their heads toward the middle and their feet kind of fanned out behind them. And here's Mary, probably stepping over everyone else's feet to get to Jesus. Now they didn't have interstates, highways, concrete roads. Back then it was dirt roads. The, when the primary form of transportation are, you know, animals or assisted by animals, you can imagine like, where does the waste have to go? It goes in the streets. And you can only imagine the, the, kind, of, the kind of filth that would get on the feet of the people during that time. See, feet in the ancient world were an incredibly messy occasion. So much so that it was often illegal for rabbis to expect of their disciples that they would do anything with their feet, with the rabbi's feet. Like a rabbi could not expect legally his disciples to have his disciples take his sandals off, wash his feet, anything like that. It was so degrading. It was only reserved for the lowest of the lowest of the lowest servant in the household. And yet here is Mary up close and personal with the feet of Jesus, hunched over the feet of Jesus, taking the posture of the lowest servant in the entire place. You see, the posture of the person who truly loves Christ is one of radical humility. Radical humility. You see, you can't be puffed up with pride. You can't think highly of yourself and also be worshiping Christ. You, you remember back at the very beginning of the book of John where, where John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. Now we would probably, many of us want he must increase and I will also increase. There is no sense of being puffed up with pride and worshiping Jesus. Those two things just simply don't go together. Maybe, maybe for you musicians, uh, I play the guitar. And so before COVID, I would love going to concerts, right? And you know, if you're a musician and you've gone to a concert of an artist that you like, two things happen when you go to that concert. One, you're really enjoying it. You're going like, man, this is awesome. And two, when you're done with it, you want to quit your instrument. <laughs> you're like, that was so good. 
Like I walked into that, I walked in there thinking I am just the greatest at guitar until they showed up, until they got on stage, until they started playing. And then I realized now that my point of reference has radically changed that I am nothing. I can, I can barely even pick this guitar up compared to them. See, greatness is always determined by our point of reference. And Mary could take the posture of the lowest of the low servants because she knew she was in the presence of a king. Because her point of reference wasn't anyone else in the house. It was Jesus himself. And my guess is that if you're anything like me, that I can be so puffed up with pride. I can think so highly of myself so overestimate my own abilities that instead of seeing Jesus as the Prince of Heaven, I more like, I more see him as a peer. Instead of seeing Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I kind of see him more like a coworker. Because you can still appreciate your peers. You can still appreciate your coworkers. You can still enjoy being around them. You might even do something for them, but worship them? No way. Now, a, a way to tell that you might see Jesus more as a peer than as a king is, is when you want Jesus, is when you more often want Jesus for what he can do for you then you want Jesus simply for who he is. Like if your association with Jesus is mostly based on what can Jesus do for me? Rather than who he is, it's very likely not, not only that you might see him as a peer, as a coworker, but actually that you, you actually see him as your servant. You're kind of like heavenly butler where it's like, well, I really want Jesus when I get in a pinch and he'll, he'll kind of like take care of things. And if he doesn't take care of things, then I'm going to find something else that does. You see, loving Jesus will result in a posture of radical humility where he is the king and we are the servants. And loving Jesus will also result in a particular perspective particular perspective. You see, it wasn't just that Mary was worshiping at Jesus's feet in a posture of humility, but it's also that she was worshiping in this way in the midst of other people. Like this was no private, personal devotion to Christ. This was no like behind closed doors, just me and Jesus. Like this was this was no like, keep your hands in your pockets and kind of like mumble out the words of the song to Jesus. Like, no, this was like a, a radical devotion to Christ that was incredibly public. This was like down on her knees with her hair untied, which was really actually a pretty scandalous thing back then. Many of you have your hair untied right now. It's no big deal. But then that, that would have been, that would have raised eyebrows to say the least. Like it would have been an image to behold. This kind of worship that Mary had toward Christ. You see, her love for Jesus gave her a particular perspective in that the worth of Jesus 
and his worthiness to be praised was of greater value than her awareness of the opinions of those who were watching her while she worshiped. Like that was the perspective. It wasn't that she wasn't aware that other people were in the room. It was that in the light of the glory of Christ, I don't care who's in the room. But how many of us, when it comes to adoring Christ, care more about preserving our image than praising his glory? You see, expressionless worship isn't a category for those who see and love Jesus for who he is. Now you might say, well, Jake, I'm not, I'm not you say expressionless worship, like I'm not really the, the, demo, the demonstrative type. I am an engineer after all. <laughs> what I'm saying is that we don't worship Christ based on our disposition. We worship Christ based on his worthiness. Now, certainly God has given us a variety of personalities. Absolutely. I'm not saying we all are like carbon copies of anyone else. But what I am saying is that it it isn't on the basis of our disposition that we worship Jesus. It's on the basis of his great value and worth and worthiness to be praised. When it comes to your faith in public, are you more aware of your own sense of awkwardness or the magnitude of his greatness? Are you more concerned about preserving an image before anyone who would see? Or do you have the singular focus on the greatness of Christ. And as you see him, like the the peripheral fades away. It's not that other people aren't important, but in the light of Christ, the presence of others doesn't stifle your worship. True love for Christ should give us a particular posture, radical humility. True love for Christ should give us a particular perspective where we have a single-minded focus on Jesus, where we worship him regardless of our surroundings. And true love and value of Christ will give us particular priorities. Now look at verse three here. This is kind of like the whole thing. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now we know from verse five, which we'll get to in just a minute, that the value of this perfume was wor- it was worth around 300 denarii, which then uh, basically one denarii was equal to one day of work. So you work a day, you get one denarii. Now, if you take out the, the Sabbath and you take out the festival celebrations that they would have had, the average working year was about 300 days. And so what we have here is Mary bringing this perfume that is worth quite literally a year's salary. A year's salary. And yet, despite the cost, there isn't a sense where she is concerned about making it last. 
It's kind of like when, uh, let's say you go out to eat to, a, to an expensive restaurant and you order a really great dish or maybe you're out with your friends and you have a, you have a really fine glass of wine that's very expensive and, and you're sipping on it or you're taking little bites and then one of your friends says like, hey, can I try some? And you're like, sure. And then they take way more than they should, right? And like something in you dies, you know? And they just like, they just like gobble it up or they take a big gulp and you're like, what are you doing? Like, do you realize how expensive that is? You're saying this in your head, obviously, but like, that's what's happening, you know? You're just like, ah, I was trying to make that last. I was trying to savor it, trying to enjoy it because of its great value. Well, here, it's not like Mary is going, hey, Martha, can you bring me a teaspoon? I need to just ladle this out. Just kind of, just a little drop on his feet. Now, this was like a, like, a, like a break the jar, pour it out kind of worship. Because here, here's the thing, adoration knows no moderation. It does, adoration knows no moderation. You already live this way. It's why when you're buying a gift for someone that you love, uh, you will spend way more on them than you probably would on yourself. Like $35 for two Magnolia wooden spoons? It's specific for a reason. <laughs> this was my life like two weeks ago. It's like... Sarah's birthday, you know, my five-year-old hands me these two wooden spoons. I'm like, $35, is it? Did they find Noah's Ark and make spoons out of it? Like, what is the point of this? Why? Why is it so expensive? Well, it is her birthday. So, it's, okay, throw it in the cart, fine. Like, I would never do that for myself, ever. I wouldn't buy a wooden spoon just period, regardless of, I don't know what you do with them, you know, like, but it's, it's for my wife. I know she'll, I know she'll like it. It is her birthday. Adoration knows no moderation. And when Mary was overcome with love for Jesus, when she saw the great value of Christ, it totally rearranged her values. It totally rearranged her priorities. Like, like the things that she would have cherished the most, like this perfume, a year's salary. And not only that, it's very likely that this would have been like a family heirloom. So not only are there like financial implications, but there's also like family implications here. As she dumps this out, when she sees the value of Christ, it eclipses the value of anything else. In any tight-fisted grasp she would have had on, on even her most valuable things begin to loosen in the light of Christ. Do you love Jesus like that? Is, is it like for you, like the old hymn that says, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Or are you like me and you find yourself sympathizing with Judas? Look at verse four. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. You see, at face value, what Judas says is morally understandable, right? Like we see throughout scripture that those who love and follow Jesus should have a care for the poor. We should have a deep concern for the marginalized. We should care for those who have less than what we have. And yet at the same time, what we see here is that even religious principles that are true can become false pretenses behind which a greedy heart will hide. See, because John tells us precisely why Judas brought up the poor. It wasn't because he cared about the poor. It's because he cared about his own pocketbook. See, he was using the poor as a way to ensure that his own greed could continue. There, there's a kind of false piety that claims, we'll say biblical principles, that claims wisdom, stewardship, even concern for the poor. There's a kind of piety that is actually used as a veil for greed. Now, how can you tell? How can you tell that greed has captured your affections more than Christ? I think it's when you're better at finding reasons to not give than you are of finding reasons to give. When you're better at finding reasons not to give of your time, not to give of your money or your resources or, any, or what you have. When you're better, when it's like, like, well, I would give to that, but that, that organization is too big or that, that's too small. Or they, they do this well, but they don't do that well. They, they do this or I don't really like that, so I'm not gonna. It's a, it's a kind of like Goldilocks generosity where it's kind of like, ah, too hot, ah, too cold. I, you can find every reason not to do it. And in the process can also claim like, well, I, wa I want to be wise. I want to be a good steward. I want to really check out the things, that, the things that I'm, you know, expending myself toward. But in the process, you can end up doing absolutely nothing. Because at the end of the day, it can become a veil for a greedy heart. Where in essence, I keep everything to myself. Because you're really good at finding reasons not to give it away. Have the things of this earth so captured your affections that like Judas, Mary's response to Jesus seems absolutely ludicrous. Like suppose that there's someone in your connection group who have, been, who have become so captivated by the beauty and the glory and the value of Christ and, and have also become so convicted by their love of money that they cash out their 401k and just totally give it away. And I'm not talking like, like a 25-year-old where it's like a 0.0401k. Like, like a legit, you know, this is like someone who has saved up for years and years and years. And under the conviction of the Holy Spirit where it's like they love their money, they give it away to fight that greedy heart. Would you go, are you kidding me? How, how unwise. Now, the point in that illustration is not that it's wrong to save or invest or to keep anything for yourself. The point 
is how much do you love what you have? Does what you have actually have you? That's the point. You see, far too many of us have a respectable, manageable, balanced devotion to Christ that makes actually probably a lot of sense to people who would never say they value Christ. Like a kind of faith that is so moderate that it falls within the sensibilities of an unbelieving world where your friends, where your neighbors, where your coworkers, where the people in your spheres around you, when they look at your faith and the implications of your faith in your life, the ways that you make decisions, the ways that you spend your time, the ways that you spend your money, that even unbelievers could possibly look at your life and go, yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Where they don't look at you and go like, what are you doing? That is crazy. Has your tax person ever kind of tilted their head at you in confusion as to, as to how much you just give away and don't keep for yourself? Or does it make sense? Do they have a category for it? You see, it's the things that we most effortlessly spend our money on, give our time to. It's those things that, it, that we don't even have to work at it. It's that that has our heart. And here's the thing, what we don't see anywhere in this first part of John 12 is anyone compelling Mary to do this. You notice that? No one is putting Mary on a guilt trip going like, Mary, don't you see, like Jesus is here. Don't you want to like give him something? Maybe something valuable. And Mary going, oh, I guess, yeah, I guess you're probably right. All right, get over here, Jesus. Glub, 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 glub. Like, it's not from an ought to heart. Like, this isn't like guilt trip worship. It's the natural overflow. When she has seen the beauty and the glory and the value of Christ, and her grip on the things of this world began to loosen and loosen and loosen, she couldn't help but give it away to him. Now, here's what I've found. Um, sometimes, in order for my heart, in order for me to worship with a get-to heart and not an ought-to heart, just the reality is, is that sometimes I have to walk through the ought-to to get to the get-to. It's, it's the reason why, I mean, even real practically where... You know, in the morning, it's, it's late enough. First service was, is always hard because I'm not a morning person, you know. And so, like, I'll, I'll raise my hands while we're singing together, but it's, not, it's often not even because I want to. It's because I'll raise my hands and I'll go, and I'll pray to God, God, help, my, help the posture of my heart to catch up to the posture of my body right now. Help the posture of my heart to, to catch up to the things that I'm doing, the steps of obedience that I'm taking. Even if I don't like in the moment want to, and it is a sense of ought to, I say, God, would you please just change my heart by the power of your Holy Spirit so that my ought to turns into a get to, that the duty turns into delight. 
And so a couple practical things that we do as a family to, to loosen our grip on the things that we have. And if I were, it's, it's hard in a context like this, you have to be fairly general, but, and if I were sitting with you at coffee, I, I'd, I'd maybe be able to get more specific, but just a couple things that, that we have found that are, that are kind of like, um, like jumper cables of habits that like, that help get my heart, you know, started and warm towards the things of Christ. Uh, the first one is that early on in our marriage, we decided that we were going to give away 10% of our income to our local church. Real simply, now that income wasn't very big, but it was like, doesn't matter. Like the point isn't how much it is. The point is like me getting like the money leaving my hands so that I don't keep it and love it. Like the greatest way I know to fight greed is by generosity. And so we see, you know, well, 10% in the Old Testament. We don't see anything change in the New Testament. That's good enough for me. Like, I, I just don't want to love it. I want to love and value Christ. And so we, we do that and, and pray to God that our hearts will catch up. And something that we, we've also done, and again, this isn't prescriptive. You know, I'm just, I'm just saying what we do is that uh, we have a line in our budget. We just labeled generosity, literally. And we put, you know, in addition to our giving to our church, we, you know, put that line in there so that when we come across a need, we can just meet it right away. Like so not something that, you know, we need to bring to the whole church, but it's like, there's a need. Let's plan our generosity so that we'll actually do it and not just say we'll do it, right? And so here's the thing though. Often when, I, when I'm getting my, my every dollar app, go Dave Ramsey, you know, and I'm putting my budget in, uh, and I get to that like generosity section, there's, there's plenty of times where I like don't wanna do it. But trusting God that he will turn the duty into a delight, I enter those numbers and I pray to God. I say, God, help my heart catch up to my actions. And you know what happens? nine times out of 10, even more than that, is that as I encounter Christ through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as I see Jesus for who he is, day in and day out, over the course of that month, my ought to turns into a get to. That as I see the great value of Christ, my grip on the things of this earth begin to loosen. You see, Mary understood what many of us don't. And that is that true worship is never a waste. True worship is never a waste. It was in the waste, wasn't it? It was in the waste that the house was filled with the aroma. It was in the waste. It wasn't from like little eyedropper, you know, drop that the whole house, you don't fill a house with a fragrance that way. It was in the gracious overflow, the pouring out of all of it as, it as it falls off his feet and drains onto the floor. You're like, that's going into the dirt. Like that was a, a year's wages. What a waste. It's never a waste. It's never a waste. You see, a worshipful life will have a lingering scent. I was on a plane last month on our way back from Phoenix and a lady several rows ahead uh, apparently needed to use the whole bottle of lotion for whatever problem she had. I don't know what it was, but it was like, it was like are we trying to fumigate this plane? I mean, we're up in the air. <laughs> like there's like a plume, right? And in that moment, like her scent affected everybody. 
like affected the whole environment. You know, or maybe a more positive example is when, uh, when you're at Target and they're making the caramel corn. Have you ever been there when they're doing that? I don't care what part of the store you're in. You're back in the electronic, you're back in the garden section. You're way back there. Like your nose will pick you up and drag you to the front of the store and make you buy some because the, the aroma just fills the place. It affects the environment. It elicits a response. What is the scent of your life? When people get around you, are the, can, they, can they not help but be struck with the countercultural aroma of Christ-exalting worship? Or is the scent of your life something that's so familiar that an unbelieving watching world is so familiar with that it's not even noticeable? Yeah, that makes sense. That's normal. You see, Mary poured out a year's wages an extravagant worship. But what we're going to see as we hit this transition chapter is in not too many days, Jesus wouldn't pour out expensive perfume, but he would pour out his precious blood in extravagant love for you and for me. You see, we have a savior who doesn't expect who doesn't ask more of us than what he has already done for us. You see that? See, we have a savior, Jesus Christ, who though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ poured out his precious blood so that you and I could receive him as our greatest treasure. What might your life look like? What might your family look like? Your place of work, your neighborhood look like if the aroma of your life was such that said, Jesus is my greatest treasure. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have poured out your precious blood the all-sufficient sacrifice that you died and rose again three days later so that we could have you as our greatest treasure. Oh, Holy Spirit, would that be true of our lives? Would we have a loose grasp on the things of this world because we are clinging tightly to the glorious value of Jesus Christ? Help us. Help the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of the glory and grace of the infinitely valuable Son of God, Jesus Christ. We pray it in your name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.